0: I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to read uh, Paul's pastoral letter to Timothy as we continue to work through this series of life together. And this morning we arrive at a section in the text addressing men and women in the church. I mentioned last Sunday that this particular text is one of the uh, most con- controversial in all of, of Scripture, certainly in the New Testament, a text that uh, I have been uh, shared with you, marinating on uh, for the last four to six weeks, and um, probably spent more studying and preparation on this sermon than I have one in a long, long time. Also a text that most Baptist churches, in my experience, just kind of want to skip over, ignore, don't really want to address it, and so it's here for good purposes, and, and so I invite you to read this with me First. Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proffer for women professing godliness with good works. That a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Where Adam was formed first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression nevertheless she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control let's ask God's blessing as we pray God you are the one true and living God. We readily confess there are no other gods but you, and we pray that you would protect us from all idols, prevent us from allowing any person, or objects, or thoughts from coming before you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would bear witness with us, speaking clearly through your word, giving us ears to hear as well as hearts to honor all that you say, demonstrating our submission to you as Savior and Lord of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul writes to Timothy, prescribes a leadership strategy in order to improve the health of the church of Ephesus. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So this is how things are to be conducted in the church. Follow these these things, these principles, Timothy, and as we I just want to touch on them real quickly and then get into the text, but I want to ask yourself as I just highlight these principles again, ask yourself, do these principles characterize my life, and if they don't characterize your life, then why not? The first one is he's saying, for a healthy church, which is healthy Christian individuals, he says, make doctrine a priority. That means you and I are to abide in Christ and his word, to set our minds on the Lord and the scriptures. Do you think that's happening among us as a church family? It's characteristic of who we are. Then he says, number two, not to sweep things under the rug. And he describes it a little bit there, to live a spiritually disciplined life where you and I are connected and accountable to other Christians? Let me ask you this question. Do you think most members of this congregation are adhering to this idea of being connected and accountable to other Christians in the church? And if not, why not? Third, he says establish prayer as a lifestyle, praying without ceasing, praying about everything to live a life with continual communication with God. The text says it's a way of you and I finding pleasure in God, praying, and specifically he says praying for the lost who desires all to be saved. Would you say that's true of your life? that you pray over everything in your life? You pray about everything? Would you say those in leadership positions of Hillcrest Baptist Church, before making any critical decision in this church, that they go slow and they take their time and they think things through deeply, thoroughly, and pray sincerely over every decision they make as a leader in this church? And then fourth today, it's time to throw the steak on the grill. I want to and you to examine with me what Paul says to men and women in the church, and I'm I'm going to focus primarily on one verse, and I'll get there in a few moments. But I'm going to look at verse 13 today, and then uh, I'll finish up next week with uh, the the close where he cites goes back to creation. So. We examined first in verse 8 that Paul is addressing divisive men in the church. He says, stop quarreling, stop fighting, and begin praying. And so Timothy, as a pastor of that church, I want you to work hard and lead these brothers to stop complaining and quarreling about government leaders and all the oppression, and instead to live holy lives unto the Lord and to step up their game spiritually and to pray, and to pray for everyone, and to pray with everyone. And so, as they pray, they pray in faith, pray without doubting. Let me ask all of you brothers, all the men in the church, do you find yourself with an increasing, growing desire to pray? To pray for yourself, to pray for your family, to pray for your church, and to pray with your family, and to pray with your church? Paul says these are good spiritual principles for church health. Brothers, let's reject spiritual passivity and let's pray. Pray with our families, with our brothers and sisters, Christ. And so that's he starts out with men who are divisive in the church. And then the journey through this epistle begins to get a little rougher. Uh, Things have been pretty smooth so far. And then in verse 9, Pastor Timothy is to address distracting women in the church. And a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul is saying women in the church, and that's the context, in the church, but I would also add, I'm not proposing that things should be out of the church differently than they are in the church, but certainly this is applying to in the church. And he gives some instruction for Christian women concerning their conduct in the church. And he's saying this is how things are to function, to operate within the life of the uh, the congregation. Christian women, if you look in verse 10, are to live godly lives. This is what is proper for women in the church who profess godliness. And so without apology, all of us, men and women alike, are to have a common aim, and that is to live godly lives, different from the world, set apart, unto the Lord, characterized by love and good works for God's glory. Timothy is to correct some things that evidently was happening in the Ephesian church. And he singles, and he begins in verse 9 and singles and says, Ladies, be careful with how you dress and how you behave, addressing appearance and behavior. It's easy to imagine in a pagan city like Ephesus that was known for its wealth and decadence, also known for one of the seven great wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana was there, who was the Greek goddess of love and beauty, which promoted some of the worst sexually immoral worship practices imaginable, actually involving temple prostitution. And some of those cultural clothing styles and hairstyles as well as jewelry fashion and elaborate makeup practices had somehow crept into the church. And so the message is, Timothy, shepherd the flock, provide instruction to the men and the women in the church when they gather, exhort the men to stop being divisive, to be more devoted to prayer, and to instruct the women not to be distractors. They are to dress and present themselves in a way that would receive an amen from the Lord. If you look at verse 9, there's two key words there, modesty and propriety. Modesty and propriety. Modesty comes from a Greek word, kosmios, referring to outer adornment. And so the ladies in the church, as they gather, should make it their aim addressed in all modesty to find approval from the Lord, to hear the Lord say amen. And then propriety. That word comes from two Greek words describing behavior. One word is ados. Literally, and I, I looked this up, this definition literally of this word, listen, is to have downcast or bashful eyes towards men. Ados while having reverent eyes towards God. And then the second word that that word comes from, propriety, is knee, sofros, which refers to self-control. And so if you add it all together, the idea is that ladies in the church are to ex- exercise modest and careful behavior towards men with an awareness of finding God's approval. The point being, coming back to a demonstration of living a godly life. And so in verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, yes, contrary to cultural norms, didn't let the women learn. And that was no small matter. We read that, just fly right past it. But in Jewish tradition, a girl's education would be very limited. Jewish girls were taught in the home, they were taught to read and to write, and just enough to run the household, just enough of the law to, and doctrine to understand the difference between kosher and non-kosher, but nothing more for girls. Certainly no rights, no paths for any higher education and learning. And Greek culture for women was even worse. If a young girl grew up in a wealthy Greek family, she might be taught to read and write, but most Greek girls never received any instruction whatsoever and remained strictly at home, taught being taught familial duties and how to maintain a home but nothing more. And so verse 11 is pretty radical. Pretty bold, Paul says. In the church, let the women learn, certainly to read, certainly to write and study, but especially to learn doctrine, to learn about God and the laws of God. The fact is, Christianity in the first century was aimed at elevating women. Today, we just read that over, which, without giving it really much thought, which would have certainly What Paul was saying there in verse 11 would have confronted their cultural norms and met with some resistance in the church. I wonder if the Bible, when it prescribes something to us as Christians, when God through his word prescribes something for us as a church that confronts our norms and our traditions, how do we respond to it? We see it in the Bible, but that's not the way we do it. God, I know your word says this, but that's not the way I way I roll. How do we to, to respond to this? He says, women in the church, let your dress and your appearance receive God's amen. Learn, study the Bible, develop yourselves theologically. And we would certainly say study and do well in school and women developing your minds for God's glory and using it for his purposes in all areas of life and to behave in a modest way which describes a Christian woman living a quiet, godly life. Some of your Bibles may use the word silent there. A quiet, godly Christian woman who conveys reverence, being submissive to the Lord, and if married, being submissive to her husband, which I want to expound on next Sunday. A godly woman in the body of Christ in the church will care and be conscientious of her words and her actions, not wanting to be perceived as loud and bold and aggressive and controlling or domineering either in the church or in the home. Never wanting to be perceived as a woman in the church who is too opinionated. A woman in the church who talks too much, oftentimes talking over others. A woman in the church who is strong-willed, who insists on her own way, and if she doesn't get her way, she might work behind the scenes to get it. That kind of woman in the church runs counter to this text. Certainly to 1 Peter 3, a godly woman is described as one who fears the Lord, that possesses the beauty of a gentle, humble, soft, submissive attitude and a quiet spirit whose demeanor is calm, who is under the control of the Holy Spirit and doesn't think that she's got to control everything. Verses 9, 10, and 11 seem pretty smooth. Certainly much to think about. But then in verse 12, the ride gets a little more bumpy. Let me preface this verse. When Mindy and I got married, we got along pretty well. We enjoyed spending time together, had lots of fun, didn't argue too much, and things were pretty good. One week after our wedding, we moved away from our home and family in Michigan and followed God's call, and it's never changed wherever he's taken us, and While it's not always been easy, looking back, it's been good. And we've gotten along in the process. And so when I think about this verse and I think about the early years of our marriage, we just, when we got married, we just naturally adjusted. We began taking on different roles. I don't remember us sitting down with pens and paper assigning all the various responsibilities that we were gonna have to take care of as a married couple. We just kind of worked things out together and spent time with one another and talked and listened and relied on each other. And somehow we got things done and we got along in the process. We were married and I was in Bible college, married at the time. And I began to discover texts from the Bible about husbands and wives. Some of it were things that I had never really thought about. There's several texts in the New Testament about husbands and wives and marriage. They're they're referred to as family codes, like Ephesians 5, you know that one, where husbands love your wives, Christ love the church, wives submit to your husband, respect your husband, and Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3, and Titus chapter 2, and... Certainly, this text, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, lots of family code texts in the New Testament. And I remember I began to read those texts of scripture and started becoming familiar with what they said. And and as I read them, I went through two phases. The first was an understanding phase what does this mean? What do these words mean? Like headship from the Greek word kefele. What what does that mean? And so there was a a phase of learning it, trying to understand what the Bible says and what it means. And then the second phase was, how do I put this into practice? Practically, how how do Mindy and I live this out every day in our life, in our home, in our marriage and family? And so I began to understand what the Bible said, and then I knew how she and I functioned, and I said, so how does this look? How does this play itself out in the marriage? And so, honestly, it took me several years of praying and reading and thinking on how and to figure all this out and how it applied. Now, fast forward. I'm 61 years old, We've been married for 40 years, we've raised three daughters and a son, been pastoring a long time, preaching and teaching on marriage and counseling with couples, and obviously my stage in life and ministry is much different than it was 35 years ago. Those of you who are my age and getting around this age, you start looking at some things a little differently than you used to, right? And these texts, these family codes about marriage and family, while they, they have never changed, they say the same thing today that they said when I was studying them 35 and 40 years ago, but I can tell you this, how I understand them and apply them has changed. The Word of God doesn't change, but my, there are certain aspects and principles in my life today that when I read these texts, jump out more than they used to. Certain aspects, certain principles today as I read this are more important to me and certain things that I used to think were really important are less important than they are now. I'm not talking about watering down the scripture and changing it. But in some cases, after studying, and reading these texts, I could tell you other, and, and studying how other people have interpreted these and applied these as, As I read some of it now, some of it seems pretty dogmatic to me, and some of it seems pretty arrogant. And before I elaborate on verse 12, I want to make a few comments about that, and I want to talk about a proper attitude that we should take into texts like this when we're trying to understand them and apply them. Let me give you an example. There's one well-known Bible scholar. If I mentioned your name, most of you would know who he is. And as we begin to read his commentary on verse 12, he prefaced it with a lengthy introduction on the inspiration of the Bible, which is no coincidence. Then in no small way conveys that if you disagree with his particular interpretation of verse 12, then you cannot believe the Bible. And I would say this to you, sadly, that brother is not alone. And I can tell you my default response to that kind of arrogant mindset is I no longer have any bandwidth for it because it's arrogant. Christian arrogance and pride coupled with academic elitism is not okay. Those who pride themselves on biblical fidelity and all of their interpretations, often living and functioning in isolated academic environments where theology is never put to the test, is not healthy. Over the years, while pastoring in the shadow of a seminary, which they refer to themselves now as an academy. A cat, an, an academy, I remember the first time I heard a guy my church talk about that, he's a part of the academy. I'm gonna tell you something I've learned. Doctrinal correctness, while essential, without connectedness, living with people in community misses the point. The Bible says it best, if I have a gifted intellect and understand all biblical mysteries and possess scriptural knowledge, and I can speak with the tongues of angels and write and edit books, I added that, with eloquence, but do not love people, then I'm a big nothing, a big zero in the kingdom. Nothing more than sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. In other words, if our interpretations for us if our interpretations of this text, like all other texts, if they are correct, and we want to be rightly divide the word of truth and be correct in our understanding of the Scripture, but if we do that and don't love the church and don't truly care about the people that we're to minister to, then we're a bunch of noise. We're just noise. And all of our theological correctness is wasted. God doesn't want his word wasted. So our goal is, yes, let's study texts like this, rightly divide the word of truth, but let's also love one another even if we all don't agree on the same interpretation of this text. Let me give you an example of what I mean. There's a friend of mine. She is a woman named Linda, and Linda lives in Louisville where she serves and lives, and she's been a pastor of a sister Baptist church of that church for 25 years. And she's a friend of mine. Mindy knows her. And while I don't think it's a best practice that Linda pastors a church, because I don't think practice aligns with this text, I still love Linda and respect her. She is a sister of mine and a servant in Christ. And unlike most of my other Baptist pastor colleagues in Louisville, I never treated her rudely, nor did I support trying to remove her and her church from the local Baptist association. Do you get my point? Many of my Baptist pastor friends prided themselves in being doctrinally correct, but could not love a sister in Christ in a way that the Bible commands. There's no category in their life to have a relationship with someone who is deeply committed to the gospel, believed in the inspiration of the Bible, but held to a different view on the interpretation of this text in 1 Corinthians 11. And I would add, don't overlook the fact that the entire Assemblies of God denomination who is deeply committed to the gospel and the Bible and deeply committed to world missions allow for women to serve as pastors. I am not making promoting women pastoring churches. I'm just saying that there's some differences in interpretation and I don't... Well, I'm not gonna say that. I just don't believe that's the best practice. I don't believe it's in line with Scripture, but it's not an issue that I would divide with a sister in Christ over. So doctrinal correctness while maintaining love in our hearts. That's the point. And so we stand in di- danger of violating when we're just doctrinally correct when we don't love people. We stand in danger of what Jesus said was the single most important Christian e- ethic, and that was to love God supremely, and to love other people as you do yourselves. So finally, look with me at verse 12. What does Paul say? Yes, women equal in the image of God, equal in reflectors, being reflectors of God, equal in dignity and worth and value before God, equal in... Exercising dominion over the earth in Genesis, equal in salvation, saved the same way as men are, the same God, the same gospel. Women equal Galatians three twenty-eight. Neither slave, free, male or female, Jew, Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus. Men and women equal with God through prayer, one mediator between all of us, equal also in spiritual service. Do any of us think that men's service to the Lord is more important than women? It's not what you see in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12. So yes, equal, but but there are differences between a man and a woman. And I would contend while there are many cultural voices saying otherwise, any person who might argue this point can't see the forest for the trees. <laughs> there are some differences, physical differences, and with Men and women, and with those differences, there are differences in functions and roles. And in the church, there are differences in roles based on God's design, which goes back to creation, which I'll want to talk about next Sunday. So look at verse 12. Paul is forbidding two things. What does he say? He says, first, I do not permit a woman to teach, and second, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. And so remember, as we unpack the meaning and message of this text, this text does not stand alone. It, like all other texts, is tied contextually to what is said before it and to what is stated after it. So what did Paul say before this? Well, in chapters 1 and 2, he's saying that all of us, men and women alike, are to be devoted to doctrine and community and accountability and discipline and prayer, especially for the lost. And then if you go next to chapter three, all of us are to serve doing those things above, but as we serve men and women in the church, we do so under the authority of the church's leadership. Look at chapter three, one and two. Who are the church's leaders? This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior, hospitable, and circle the next characteristic, the next quality. They need to be apt to teach. So who does Paul prescribe here and say the church's leaders are? Who are they? And he says here, they're a plurality of elders in the church men serving as a bishop or as an elder. Those terms are synonymous, referring to the same office. Some, in some It's the same word, but sometimes it's translated pastor, shepherd, overseer, bishop, or elder. And what you also notice in verse 2, these men who are called to lead the church, these spiritual leaders, are to possess one distinct characteristic, which you not find if you go down and... Read the rest of chapter 3. You see some characteristics for deacons. You don't see this characteristic for deacons, only for elders in verse 2. These men who are set apart by the church as elders to spiritually shepherd the flock and lead it, like 1 1 Peter 2. It says, These men are to possess one distinct characteristic they must be apt to teach, which means they lead the church with their teaching authority. So, as you interpret verse 12 of our text this morning, it's easy to imagine in the church where that culture and then all of its issues had crept into the Ephesian church. Therefore, I believe that Paul is addressing women who were undercutting the church's leadership, women who were disrupting things. That's why he says some things to those women going into this in those earlier verses. Verse 12 pro. Paul prohibits women from two things. First, he says, I do not allow women to teach. Well, what's the context? In the church. I do not permit women to teach in the church. Now, that is not a blanket statement that covers all of Scripture. You say, why do you say that? Because we know the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and there are other places in the New Testament where women are teaching, ministering the Word. For example, 2 Timothy Timothy was taught the scriptures by who? Women. By his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. They were teaching. Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Paul commands women are to teach. The older women teaching the younger women. They're teaching. Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching the gospel, and he quotes the word, and it says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your girls, your daughters, shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. What is Prophecy. What does it say that God will pour out his spirit in women, maidservants, women that will prophesy? Well, prophesying means to apply the scriptures in a way that edifies the hearer. Paul talks about that to the, to the Corinthians. He said, I'd much rather preach many words of prophecy than a few words of an unknown tongue. Prophecy means what? Prophecy edifies it, builds up the church. Let me give you some others. Acts 29, 21, verse 9. Philip, the New Testament said, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, which means they ministered the word. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 26. Priscilla is married to a guy named Aquila. They are co workers of the Apostle Paul. And it says this couple, this man and this woman, pulled Apollos aside. A Bible says Apollos was a man mighty in the scriptures, and it says that this husband and wife team explained to Apollos, taught, teaching him the ways of God more accurately. Romans 16, 7, Paul notes that Andriconus and his wife Junia were sent out as apostles, who were apostles. Apostles were those who were set out with a message of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul says, I do not forbid women to pray and to prophesy. The context is in the church, he says, as long as their heads are covered. And their heads covering being covered was a sign of cultural submission. And don't overlook the most obvious text in the New Testament, the Great Commission, issued both to men and women, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach them. Teach them to obey the Scriptures. Colossians 3.16, Paul said to the whole church, men and women, he says, teach and admonish one another in the church, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. So Paul's forbidding women to teach in verse 12 is not a blanket statement. I believe it applies to something specific that was occurring in Ephesus where he's reigning those women in, but we don't know exactly what it was. The second Consider the prohibition, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. Again, the context is in the church, which is tied to the broader context, chapter three, one, and two. Who were called to oversee and shepherd the church? It was the elders. Where do the elders derive their authority as they lead the church? They derive their authority from God's word. Again, being apt to teach. Have to teach means they understand the Bible, they think biblically, and they know how to apply it for the life of the church to keep it healthy and strong. The only real authority I possess in this church, as your pastor, comes from Scripture. My only authority in this church comes from Scripture. Elders are responsible for two primary things in the church. They lead the church. They set directions spiritually for the church. They establish priorities for the church. They say yes when things need to be yes, and they say no when things need to be no. They shepherd the flock, and they teach and lead it through the word. So when Paul forbids women from teaching and having an authority over men, I believe he is pointing to the office and the role of an elder as a pastor, as an overseer. And by the way, if this sounds radical to you, you I'm, much of this is coming from Danny Aiken's commentary, the president of Southeastern Seminary who will be here. Much of it's coming from David Platt's comments from these texts. I'd also n- note That in verses 13 through 15, we know this is not entirely cultural because Paul goes back and appeals to creation. He references God's design in creation and refers to a created order there, which means this text should not be explained away as being purely cultural. He's making reference to man established by God in creation to demonstrate spiritual leadership, which I want to cover with you next week. So, conclusion. Practically, application. Here's three things I would say to you as a church. Let's value the teaching ministry of women in this church. Let's value the teaching ministry of women in this church. Women teaching children. Women teaching students. Women teaching other women Bible studies. Husbands and wives team teaching which Mindy and I have been doing on Sunday mornings with a marriage couple, kind of like Priscilla and Cliff, women, men and women team teaching. If men and women were to meet with other married couples and they both minister the word, let's value women, husbands and wives, serving together in Sunday school to minister the word, women making disciples, teaching the word, and from Colossians 3, all of us teaching one another. But let's also value women serving in places of leadership in the church. When women, like men, submit to the elders, they should be free to lead in a variety of roles, thriving in various ministries across the church. However, from verse 12 and in the context of chapter three, verse one, let's pray. Let's pray. Just, I may get some emails this week, some questions. But let's pray that God would raise up, as his word prescribes, a plurality of elders in the church, in this church. Men who are apt to teach, called by the church, who are set apart by the church, recognized to exercise spiritual authority, teaching authority, and oversight for the church. Let's pray to that end. Let's value one another, men and women in ministry, and the ministry of the word together as a body of Christ. Let me pray with you.